Saturday, uh, 27 million, the year of 2023. We're starting our weekend uh, commemoration of the honored dead. Uh, this is Memorial Day weekend. Uh, as a long time, either listeners to the show over at Breitbart Radio or even in my time at Victory Sessions in WABC in um, L.A., or now with the War Room, know that we take Memorial Day here very, very seriously. Uh, in the next hour, not in this hour, I got Jack Posobiec. The next hour, Patrick K. O'Donnell, the uh, leading combat historian of a generation, will join me. And Patrick K. O'Donnell and Captain Maureen Banner will be with me on Monday. We do our Memorial Day special. I want to bring in now uh, Jack Posobiec. Jack is a former naval officer. Jack, I, I want to... Um, talk about in this air in this hour and pick your brain is the the one things we talk about we're going to talk about with patrick here down the next hour is the 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 level of violence in these conflicts i think you know this weekend is not veterans day this weekend is not about people's service i understand a lot of well-meaning people come up and thank you for your service and all that during this weekend this weekend is about not even about the the injured right the, the horrible casualties we've had this is about the honored dead this is about those who gave their lives in defense of their country, in defense of this republic, and it's now over, I think, a million killed in actions. Uh, as a former naval officer, put it in perspective before we start talking about some of the levels of violence in the different wars of the United States of America, and we're going to talk about the modern wars uh, in uh, Ukraine and, ple- and places like Fallujah. Jack Posobiec. Look, Steve, uh, when we look at Memorial Day and we look about people who are fighting for their country, people who are dying for their country. When you talk about what's going on, not only with U.S. wars, but also the current wars that we're seeing in the East right now, regardless of your feelings on Ukraine and NATO and and Zelensky and Putin, etc., I don't think anybody holds anyone in disregard in any way. It's always respectful to be fighting for your home, to be fighting for your country. But I do think that when we talk about these wars, and this war particularly, in Ukraine, we just wrapped up, or we saw they just wrapped up the Battle of Bakhmut here. People don't realize the scale of this thing. And I think that in Western media, we've been gaslit so much, other than a few accounts, like there's this one in the New Yorker that just dropped very quietly a couple of days ago about actual uh, from the front reporting, but where, but there's no videos, there's barely any pictures of it. You know, you see a few shots here and there, but they're not showing every night, Steve. The Battle of Bakhmut was 10 times the size of the Second Battle of Fallujah that we all talk about. There's so many documentaries about it. There's there's uh, movies about it. Ron DeSantis talks about it uh, because he was attached to one of the SEAL units uh, there serving in a, in a JAG capacity, a legal capacity. And so we don't seem to realize, though, that the this war, this just one battle of this war was on a World War II scale or at least something that we haven't seen since World War II, because since World War II, really since the 1950s, maybe the 1970s, we haven't gone up against a near-peer great power. The United States hasn't. Typically, we've been fighting, uh, you know, you're fighting the jungles of Ho Chi Minh, you're fighting in the deserts, whether it's the Taliban or Al-Qaeda, ISIS, you're not going up against an enemy or another combatant that is the same type of combat capability as you would see today with the Russian Federation. 
That's what NATO's against. And in this Battle of Bakhmut specifically, you had NATO going up against not even the Russian regular army. They were going up against this Wagner, um, these mercenaries, basically, uh, some of them conscripts, some of them, these guys, they were given, you know, convicts who were given, uh, you know, get out of jail free passes if you agree to go up to the front. This was not the trained military. And yet you had just in terms of the sheer numbers. Um, and it's hard to get, again, ground truth from what's going on here. That's why we've got to rely on people who are there, journalists who are there, the bits and pieces that we can get but from the videos we're seeing. I've seen as many numbers of total as 40,000 dead, 50,000 dead just on the Ukrainian side, possibly as many as up to 150,000 people fought here over the last 200 days. I, I want to, one of the purposes of doing this commemoration is to make sure that we don't have these situations again, particularly more American combat casualties. You know, I'll be talking specifically in the next hour with Patrick, who was embedded. He was embedded not as a war correspondent. He was embedded as a combat historian with a rifle, a Marine rifle squad. And I think the book is We Are One. Uh, we'll talk about that in the next hour. But Fallujah has been the biggest battle. And, and Fallujah, by the way, Jack, as you know, is one of the bigger battles in Marine Corps history. I mean, that was a, a city. The Marine Corps, you know, very rarely goes in the cities of, what, 250,000 people and have to go door to door. That battle was horrific. And the casualties we took in that battle were horrific. And the scars that that battle left uh, were horrific. But what we're trying to avoid here in Ukraine, and this is why I think what Posobiec's witness is so important, is that, the scale of – whenever you fight in that part of the war world, the scale is just bigger. Like in World War II, Jack. Talk to the audience first. What's the difference – and you know this given your Polish heritage. What's the difference between the Eastern Front of World War II and, and the great heroism shown – and we're coming up on the anniversary of D-Day in a couple of weeks. And, and the Western Front or the, the Western Theater of Operations in World War II versus – the Eastern Front and, and things like uh, what Operation Barbarossa. When you have to understand about Operation Barbarossa is this wasn't this was you know we, we watch um, you know we watch Band of Brothers we watch Saving Private Ryan we watch all the great and wonderful and sacred American movies that tell the stories of these sacred soldiers that but we don't hear about the scale and it is a difference of scale an exponential difference of scale on the Eastern front just because the eastern front is so massive and you have to remember people have to remember that uh there were people over there fighting uh, they're not being sent over to fight these are people that are fighting in their homes these are people that are fighting in their backyards their front yards these are kids and and when i've talked to uh uh my wife tanya tay about this and i said well you know with most americans of my generation you'll say you know did your grandfather fight you know, and she'll say, no, it's my great grandfather. Why? Because these guys were being sent over in their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, and they would all continue on marching towards Berlin. And it wasn't this idea of like 18 to 24. It was everybody. You had, you were given your rifle and you were sent, sent to the front with no step back. And in, in, in the scale, and by the way, some of the things in, Barbar- in Barbarossa and in uh, the Eastern Front were... This is why Patton and Eisenhower and General Marshall, all the, the brains of the American high command, under no situation or circumstance would we ever allow American troops over there or even American support operations over there. We would send them equipment, but no even logistics uh, op, you know, operations 
because you're getting sucked into something that is so bottomless as far as the casualties could go. We couldn't do it and we wouldn't do it, although we were the, uh, the arsenal for democracy when it, when it, when it happened. Uh, and you're seeing the same thing here today. But go, t- tell me about the scale of the Battle of Kursk, uh, the, of, of Stalingrad, which are, what, a couple of hundred miles from where the battlefront is, just going across Ukraine, one of the bloodiest, you know, the, the Nazis pierced, this is went to Ukraine people, to get to the oil fields. This is why people need to look at the maps of this area to understand, because I know these names are, you know, not, not names that we're familiar with. This isn't Monte Cassino. This isn't Rome. This isn't Normandy. This is geography that not a lot of Americans are familiar with. If you look at those battles, Kursk, Stalingrad, and now Bakhmut, they're all generally in the same relative neighborhood. They're all within a couple hours of each other. Uh, the reason for this is because the Germans understood, the Russians have understood from time memorial, even going back to the time of the Vikings. That's the Volga River. Uh, that's where Stalingrad is. Now, Vol- that's why it's called Volgograd. This is, to the Russians, their mother river. This is the one where, if you're able to take that out, and this is why the Germans tried to do it twice, that if you're able to sever Moscow from the Caucasus, from their access to the Middle Eastern oil fields, then you can essentially you can essentially cut them off from their supply lines. And then what what are you going to do? Get supply get your uh, your mineral supplies out of Siberia? It's too long. You're never going to be able to keep it up. That's why they know that if you cut off this geostrategic area for Russia, which starts in the Donbas, then sends heads all the way over to Stalingrad. This is the area which connects your Volga River with the Sea of Azov then the Black Sea, and on the other end, the Caspian Sea. You cut Moscow off from the Caucasus, you will, di- you will directly strike a blow that will eventually lead to the end of Russia. This is why the Russians will fight and have fought tooth and nail. Battle of Stalingrad, largest battle in human history. Even the civil wars of China were not, didn't have battles that actually were bigger than the Battle of Stalingrad. Battle of Kursk, the largest tank battle in history. We're talking on a scale of something that you wouldn't see out of uh, out of the movies, things that Americans can't even comprehend. Imagine an entire, like the entire state of Ohio just reduced to a battlefield. Every single city in Ohio reduced to rumble. And in many of these cases, on the area that's now Poland, on the area that's now Ukraine, on the area that's now Belarus, that is the battlefield where these where these battles were fought. That's why you, when you go over there now, they don't have very many great cities or very many old structures there. Why? Because they were gone. When I you know, when I go back to Tanya Tay's hometown in Belarus, you say, well, wait a minute, this town's been here for 500 years. Where's all the old, where's all your old churches? Where's all your old buildings? Where's, you know, the old uh, you know, mansion or something? They're all gone. They've all been wiped out in years after years because this is the bloodlands of Europe. This is where the empires of the East fought against the empires of the West. And these areas where if, if you want to get involved into a war here, like we've, like Napoleon tried, like the Germans tried twice, we know that it always ends in bloodshed. It always ends in some of the largest battles in European history. And so the idea that we have that, oh, we're going to make a go for it because we've got better technology and we've got, you know, we've got history on our side. We've got morality on our side. Well, guess what? That's what they think, too. And they're not they definitely remember the Russians definitely remember how to fight on this land because they've they've fought and won this land. How many times in recent history when we study battle? At the American War College, whether you're going through Naval War College in Newport, whether you're going for through the uh, the Army War College in Pennsylvania and Carlisle, 
you are going to study the American battles. When the Russians go through Russian war college, what do you think they're studying? They're studying the Battle of Stalingrad. They're studying the Battle of Kursk. They're studying the strategy. And they don't do the type of battles that we are used to in the West. They don't fight the way Western Europeans, the Blitzkrieg, the Thunder Runs that we saw in Iraq or uh, or, or in, uh, going through Kuwait either time in Iraq, really. No, 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 no. It's all battles of attrition. It's encirclement. It's cauldrons. And then they slowly but surely wind you down step by step, piece by piece. And I do think I do think that the initial invasion into Ukraine with only 100,000 pe- 100, troops was not meant to be a full on occupation. You can't occupy Ukraine with only 100,000 troops. I think that was a blow intended to knock the regime out. Uh, essentially, they wanted Zelensky to step down, then they would flee, then they'd be, in, be able to install a puppet in their place. Uh, Zelensky, we know the history, though, doesn't do that. He decides to stay. The Americans say, you're going to stay. Um, NATO says, you're going to stay. And so th- what do the Russians do? They pull back, they take up defensive positions, and then they slowly go back to their ground and pound strategy, where they just grind you down, grind you down, grind you down. And I've been to this area. Everyone, anyone who's been to this area or flown over, you get it. There are no natural boundaries. There's no mountains. Uh, there's there's few rivers basically that are your only natural boundaries. It seems like it might make sense. You might you might get a sense of like this is why Napoleon thought he could make it. And Napoleon, of course, did make it all the way to Moscow. You might get a sense. This is why the Germans thought they could make it all those times. But the problem is when you penetrate so far into Russia, and this happens in every world war, when you penetrate so far in, you realize that your supply lines are stretched thin and then you are surrounded on all sides by Russia. And don't it's have endless. to take my word it's for endless. it. You can listen to the New Yorker. Yeah. Listen to this. In the trenches yeah. in the this is New Yorker, Luke Vogelton just got back from two weeks. Yeah. The trenches of Donbass, infantry fire, unrelenting horrors, missiles, grenades, helicopters, hellfire from artillery raining down on you. You can't dis- you can't distinguish between craters, national natural topography and the bodies of infantrymen. OK, uh, on the Memorial Day weekend for our honored dead, the commemoration in 2023. We are currently looking at a war in the Eurasian landmass, both in Ukraine and in the South China Sea and on the East and East China Sea. Um, in World War II, we had Russian allies and we had uh, Chinese allies that provided the bulk of the manpower and fought on the Eurasian landmass. We rolled up through the islands to take on Japan and came in from the West with D-Day and aerial bombing in Italy, through Italy to take on the uh, Nazis and the fascists. We're going to both discuss uh, this war in the Eurasian landmass and make sure that we put a marker down, no American casualties. All next in the war room. Junk science. That's what the doctor called many of those fruit and vegetable supplements. Junk science because they use extracts of common produce department fruits and vegetables with few health benefits. Now look, I take Field of Greens because it's the whole organic fruit and vegetable, not a watered down supplement. And it's backed by a better health promise. Each ingredient in Field of Greens was scientifically chosen to support Vital organs like heart, lungs, and kidney health. Others support my immune system, blood pressure, metabolism, and healthy weight loss. I don't eat as healthy as I should. I got that. I know it. I own it. 
That's why I take Field of Greens. Like me, you'll probably look and feel healthier fast and have way more energy. And I mean way more energy. But your best proof will be at your next checkout checkup when your doctor says, hey, whatever you're doing, it's working. Keep it up. Let me get you started with 15% off. Visit fieldofgreens.com. That's fieldofgreens.com. And use promo code Bannon. That's promo code Bannon at fieldofgreens.com. Take action, action, action. Do that today. Okay, welcome back. Uh, it is our Memorial Day uh, weekend special. We kick off today. I have Jack Posobiec, a former naval officer, and of course, Patrick K. O'Donnell in the next hour. And then on Monday, we have Patrick K. O'Donnell, myself, and Captain uh, Maureen Bannon. Um, J- Jack, he, 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 go back to the go back to Bakhmut, because we're going to talk is South China Sea and Taiwan in the next segment. But I want to make sure everybody's got their... This has kind of fallen off the front page. And the reason it's fallen off the front page is because the Biden regime and the media don't want to talk about what's actually going on. And they certainly don't want you to know what's going on in Bakhmut. Go back to that New Yorker piece you were reading. I'd like, to, I'd like if you reread that right now and let's talk about Bakhmut and what actually happened there. I mean, Steve, you, I, I highly encourage everyone to go and read this report out of the New Yorker because – you know, I know people will say, they'll say, oh, well, Posobiec, you know, that you're just following stuff on Telegram. You don't know who's putting that out. I say, well, those are source videos from on the ground. Or they'll say, we see something on Twitter. You don't know who's putting out. OK, here's the New Yorker. All right. This is the same uh, the same reporting that you could stand up anywhere. This is a mainstream and honestly center left kind of publication. Uh, and, and you can read that these reports always seem to be the same narrative that you find from people who are on the ground. It's not the mainstream narrative that you're getting every night on CNN, even Fox News to some extent. Uh, when you talk about this, and, and here, here's, here's an example from a Ukrainian. Uh, the Wagner forces brought in waves of convicts that proved too much for the Ukrainians who were still reeling from Kherson's battle, had not yet replenished their ranks and materiel. The commander of the battalion, a 39-year-old lieutenant colonel named Pavlo, said of the Wagner fighters, they were like zombies. They used the prisoners like a wall of meat. It didn't matter how many killed, they kept coming. Within weeks, the battalion faced annihilation. Entire platoons wiped out in close contact firefights. Some 70 men encircled and massacred. The dwindling survivors, one officer told me, became useless because they were so tired. Uh, One Russian said that that because they're losing so many, I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, because they're losing so many troops, 
they're now on the Ukrainian side forced to bring in new draftees. But the problem with the new draftees is that every time you do a mobilization, you're now running out of experienced trained fighters. And Ukraine's already seen several waves of general mobilization at this point. That means the people you're getting in, you're getting civilians, you're getting people with no experience, people who spent maybe the first time they've ever held a gun is the one you gave to them. And you're sending those kids up to the front lines now. This is basically Germany at the very end of World War II in the Battle of Berlin, where it's all kids and uh, and senior citizens that are holding the line at the very end because all of the trained fighters in the Wehrmacht had been completely wiped out at that point. And then you hear things. These guys don't have the stamina. They get scared. They panic. And uh, one line, where was it? He said... There's a phenomenon that they're seeing because of the high attrition rate called reverse natural selection, reverse natural selection, because seasoned infantrymen, and it mentions a few of them here, became extremely fatigued and then go AWOL because they say they get into a bad place psychologically and they need a break. Then they run back home. Then they're running back to the trenches out of a sense of guilt and a sense of loyalty. But that being said, keep in mind when you're on that zero line up there every single night, you are under the reign of hellfire from the Russian artillery. So again, when we keep reporting, this, this is, I mean, this goes on. It's, it's easily a 10,000 word article. And if you're looking for some, some reporting this weekend that you can say, look, this isn't, this isn't human events. This isn't the war room. This is from the New Yorker saying that you are putting people into the meat grinder over there. And in fact, it's cannon fodder. That's what's going on. You've got cannon fodder on both sides that are being thrown at each other. And if the United States continues on this path, then you might start to see Americans being drafted up and called for this specifically this, uh, because we've got some uh, obsession with yes. winning this fight. Yeah. You've got you've had, uh, I think, uh, Orban and others this week starting to say there's impossible for Ukraine to achieve a, a military victory in any time of the foreseeable future. People are talking about this. Orban said it's obvious now. there will be no victory for the poor Ukrainians. But then this this means eventually, look, they've got your money now. We're in the middle of this huge debt uh, ceiling debate, right, in the middle of this. And they refuse to even talk about defense cuts. More importantly, they will not give up the hundreds of billions of dollars they're sending over to Ukraine right now. When you say meat grinder, that's why I want to go back and compare and contrast because we don't have this now. If you look at World War II, of the great heroism that we that we uh, provided in World War II, and you talk about D-Day, you talk about the Eighth Air Force over uh, over Nazi Germany, you talk about Patton, you know, breaking out of the uh, of the hedgerows and and the, you know his 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 journey across France, the the West, particularly the British and Americans, were always particularly focused on not having tremendous combat casualties, right? When Kazarine Pass happened early in the war, you know, a ton of generals got fired because you just weren't going to throw even untrained American kids just in as cannon fodder. The Russians and the Chinese, this is how they fight, particularly the Russians. Talk, go once again about the difference between the Western mentality of war and the Russian mentality of war and how that delivered, really delivered victory for us in World War II by destroying the Wehrmacht on the Eastern Front, sir. Right. So, uh, again, this is the idea. This is how the Russians won Stalingrad. They didn't win Stalingrad because they had the best tanks. They certainly didn't have the best planes. Uh, no one was ever going to accuse Russians in World War II of having air superiority. What do they have? They have, no, they have a lot of Russians and they have a lot of people and they just keep coming. You know, Bismarck had a line about the Russians years ago where he said uh, the thing about fighting the Russians is that you have to shoot them twice, once to kill them and then, and then one more time to knock them over. And it's this idea 
that you've got a people that have lived through so many invasions and fight in a very different way. They fight in a way where it is an idea of no surrender whatsoever, that you are going to keep coming, you're going to keep marching. Keep in mind, in World War One. World War One, Russia never even was defeated by the Germans. What happened in World War One was the Germans sent in Lenin. They launched the Bolshevik Revolution. The Russians uh, start fighting amongst themselves. Then they come up. Then you get the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which essentially takes them out. But then what happens in the, in the, in the interim is that you get the war, the Soviet Union becomes formed, which obviously was a terror and a horrific, uh, horrific disaster for the entire world. So. We've tried these regime change operations in Russia before. You look how it turns out. Not so good. Uh, the difference between the the thinking is that we in the West will say, OK, we're going to put some troops in. We, we think of pincer operations. We think of, of these various different movements in Russia. It's we are going to send people and we are going to continue sending people until we've taken that land, whether it's Bakhmut, whether it's Kursk, whether it's Stalingrad. It's no step back. And this blood-soaked land that they fought for and into destroying, by the way, destroying the Nazi army, okay, getting all the way to Berlin, climbing to the top of the Reichstag and knocking that eagle off and tearing its wings off and crashing it to the ground. Uh, I think a lot of Americans miss out on how that plays into the Russian psyche because we sort of, in our World War II history, we, you know, we remember D-Day, we remember Pearl Harbor, we remember um, a couple of battles of, of the war, and then suddenly we switch to the Pacific and Iwo Jima, then Nagasaki, Hiroshima. We don't really talk about the Battle of Berlin. No, no, no. But, uh, it, but, but, but by on, the way, about hang on, Jack. But I, I think that's a I, th I think that's where American history is one of the reasons we do so much of this in the war room. I think people feel it's Pearl Harbor, D-Day, the Holocaust, and or, or the Hiroshima and the Holocaust. That's it. That's what young people know about World War II. They don't know even about our sacrifice. Right, so you're, took you're our, missing our much less. Go ahead. No, you're you're missing the fact that you're missing the fact that the Red Army did push all the way through. Joined join up by the way with the Poles at one point towards the end. Uh, then Ukrainians, Belarusians, this massive Slavic force, which makes it all the way in to Berlin under Marshal Zhukov, and of course they send in the Poles, Ukrainians, and Belarusians first uh, with six thousand tanks as battering rams through the German defenses into Berlin. Now, there had been air campaigns by the Americans and the British, to be sure, these strategic bombing campaigns, uh, like, of course, Dresden, we know about, that were absolutely horrific and just slaughtered hundreds of thousands of Germans. Uh, many times, by the way, these strategic air campaigns happened in France, too, uh, which did end up taking. This is, uh, if you read Kurt Vonnegut, this is where Slaughterhouse, uh, his Slaughterhouse novel comes from because he had been shot down and then ended up being in one of the POW camps. He was in this, this uh, meat house in the basement while the strategic bombings were going on as a prisoner of the Germans. And yet we miss so much of the ground battle that took place on the Eastern Front and then marched up into Germany because by and large, these American, you know, the American Band of Brothers and uh, our troops were not involved. But if you're missing that out, the Europe, I, t I guarantee you the Europeans remember it. And I certainly guarantee you the Russians and everyone in Eastern Europe remember it. Okay. We need to avoid any American combat troops, special forces and others in anything to do around this Ukraine war. We'll take a short commercial record. We'll come with that. Also, uh, the inevitable kinetic war in the South China Sea and the Straits of Taiwan and the defense of Taiwan, given the uh, feckless nature of the Biden regime. Okay, short commercial break. We're going to come back with the kickoff to our Memorial Day weekend here in the war room.
for war room veterans, you know, we have been all over this supply chain issue with China and medications and the uh, active pharmaceutical ingredients. China has a stranglehold on us where there's a way to break that. Jace Medical. I got an emergency medication kit from them. The FDA just declared a global shortage of medication and warned that critical antibiotics are in stream short supply across the United States. But you know that because you're a viewer or listener of the show. Now, here's the action you can take to correct. Do yourself and your family a favor and get your Jace case right now. It's a pack of five prescription antibiotics you'll have on hand for common emergencies. Just visit jacemedical.com. That's Jace, J-A-S-E, jacemedical.com. Take a few minutes and fill out the form. Your information will be reviewed by a board-certified physician, and your medication will be dispensed by a licensed pharmacy at a fraction of the regular cost. You'll be glad you have the Jace case. Go to Jace Medical. That's one word, J-A-S-E, medical.com, and enter code Bannon at checkout for a discount on your order. That's promo code Bannon at Jace, J-A-S-E, medical.com. You know what the problem is because you've watched the show. You can break, you can take action and break that problem by going to Jace Medical and get your Jace case today. Action, action, action. Okay, welcome back. Uh, you're in the war room. Uh, Jack Posobiec, how do we avoid, walk me through how they're going to try to uh, suck in American combat troops into this, into the Western front now of the war in the Eurasian landmass, sir? Well, Steve, uh, this is what Mearsheimer has warned us about. And we call it Mearsheimer's warning because he looks at the twin crises that are escalating on America's two fronts, whether it be the South China Sea and Taiwan on one end, and then the Eurasian landmass and the land battle, the proxy war that we are already in with the Russian Federation. And he says, if the United States escalates both of these conflicts at the same time, that you are now going to find yourselves in a two-front world war. This is a situation that would be absolutely disastrous for the United States. Uh, we would certainly lose our standing in the world, not to mention the standing of the U.S. dollar, which, of course, bricks uh, the yuan, the ruble are already working to undercut. And so the way to avoid this and avoid uh, what, of course, is referred to as the as the, you know, the the, the great the great trap of uh, the Peloponnesian War is this idea, the Thucydides trap, this idea that if you can push this 
to de-escalation. If you can push for peace, and I've only ever heard one person calling for peace, and that's President Trump. We just had the G7 meeting last week up in Japan, and everybody's out there crowding around Zelensky. We're going to give you more money. We're going to give you more F-16s. We're going to give you more fighters. And keep in mind, this is on the back of losing in Bakhmut. And you can you can argue about how many soldiers were lost and, and et cetera. This is the largest battle of this war that's been fought since the largest battle of Europe since World War II, the largest battle for the 21st century. And so you're doubling down. That's called the it's called the sunk cost fallacy is that we spent so much money on it. We've got to we've got to continue spending more and then we're going to win. No, that's the sunk cost fallacy. Uh, the fundamentals simply aren't there. And I think Orban is right. I think Trump is right. You've got to find a way to call for a peaceful resolution here, because the next step, Steve, I'm going to explain to you what the next step is, because they're going to say, well, who can service these F-16s? And then they're going to say, well, we're going to we're going to need American mechanics and American engineers, and they're going to service the F-16s. And then you're going to have Americans or maybe other NATO fighters, NATO soldiers, troops that are in they're going to say, well, they're going to say, you know, we can't fly them all the way back to Poland or NATO safe territory to be able to to maintain these things. So we're going to establish a NATO, uh, you know, a conventional maintenance center inside of Ukraine, close to Lviv, you know, far away from the front. And then we'll fly everything back there. We'll use that for the tanks. Keep This is what and over at humanevents.com. This is exactly what Alexander Vindman, remember, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, uh, was trying to work on. He wanted to send American contractors and American engineers over there. He was looking to raise money for this, raise funding for it, so he could send uh, Americans over there to be in harm's way to maintain equipment. And so they're going to say, well, we need the maintenance center. But in order to have the maintenance center, we're going to need to establish a NATO safe zone, a NATO green zone, a diplomatic corridor. And that's going to be in the Lviv area. And at some point, the Russians are going to point out this and say, you know what? Enough is enough. And just in the same way that Nixon and Kissinger bombed uh, camp, carpet bomb Cambodia, because that's where the Viet Cong were running over to hide into, because and it was the secret bombing campaign, which we're not going to be able to do anymore because he can't do secret campaigns in the age of social media, that he's going to say, you know what? Enough is enough. We have to cut off their supply lines. So we're going to go in. And then you're going to lead to what? A couple of NATO soldiers dying possibly Americans dying, maybe it's American contractors. And every single day, we are inching closer and closer and closer. No, 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 no. A straight, a missile, a missile or something is going to go off in Poland. Uh, they're going to th- say Article 5, right? They're going to say Article 5. Uh, next thing you know, we're going to have special forces there. you got logistics, special forces, then combat troops. We're trying to, we're going to end this hour with, wait, uh, wait, 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 I will, I will push sections. back on, the, on something yeah. on that, Steve. Do you, okay. do you really think, and I'll say this to everybody listening, do we really think that we don't have American special forces on the ground in Ukraine right now already? Okay, fine. I want to talk about that. By the way, we're going to end with Section 60. What we're trying to avoid in, in the next is to avoid having any more Section 60s over at Arlington National Cemetery. That was a new section they opened up for the Afghan and Iraq uh, killed in actions, KIAs. That's where you go over and you see the young families. We want to avoid that. We do not want combat troops in to Ukraine. Are you saying right now, Jack, that you think there's a high probability of American special forces already in Ukraine? Steve, I don't need to think that because we know that this was this is what came out in those leaked documents from that Air National Guardsman up in Massachusetts, Dak Chichera. He he specifically said that of the special forces detachments that were in Ukraine, it was pretty much every major NATO country to include the U.S., to include the U.K., soft special operations forces, boots on the ground in Ukraine conducting operations right now. 
Uh, Jack, one more time before we pivot to before we pivot to the South China Sea and Taiwan, I just want you to go over the scale, and this is what people don't understand. Since the biggest battles in nineteen late forty four, including um, the Battle of the Bulge, and into nineteen forty five, the Battle of Berlin that led up to the collapse of the Nazis in um, in um, uh, in in May of nineteen forty five. The biggest land war fought since then has been around this strategic hamlet, I guess, of Bakhmut, a town of 70,000. Walk me through your best, what people are banding about, what the casualties, civilian and military casualties around this uh, town have been. So there's a line here. I'll pull it up. I've got it in uh, my message here where you've got you've got people on both sides calling out what the casualty numbers are. So Prigozhin, who is the head of the Wagner Group, so you're going you're gonna to assume that he's going to deflate the Russian numbers, inflate the Ukrainian numbers a little bit, but it's pretty close to what you're seeing in some of the media. He's saying that the Wagner Group, the PMC, had up to uh, 50,000 troops in Bakhmut. Wagner losses were 10,000 dead. The armed forces of Ukraine had 80,000 troops in Bakhmut and 40,000 dead. That's a four-to-one ratio, Steve four to one ratio he's claiming out of this. Now, I'm sure that they're going to claim otherwise in terms of it, but I I don't think those numbers are too far off when you look at the general scale of things in terms of even what Western sources are saying. And so this idea that, okay, sure, Battle of the Bulge, we're not seeing that scale yet, but we're getting close. Because when the Russians start moving, keep in mind the Wagner Group, this is a mercenary company, Steve. This is like uh, this is like you know, send Eric Prince and his guys over and give Eric Prince fifty thousand troops and have him go take Fallujah, go take one of the cities in Iraq, right? It's just it's something that we've never seen in the United but, States. Yeah. Uh, this but, isn't but also, the regular Russian. But army. we haven't seen. By the way, 80,000, 80, I want to talk about civilian casualties. Eighty thousand troops, 40,000 casualties, that's 50% killed. These are KIAs. That's not even wounded. Those, uh, 50% no, these KIA are rates, are, it's, it, 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 it boggles the mind. I mean, 50,000 dead, not including Russian troops, just the mercenaries, 50,000 dead, not including the civilians. Remember, this is a town of 70,000. I think there's 2,000 civilians left is where I thought the, the last number. And it, I'm sure most of those fled, but there could be... 10, 15,000, 20,000 uh, d- uh, dead uh, uh, folks from the town of Bakhmut. That's the, the scale of this is massive, and nobody's talking about the scale. If we get sucked into this, you're going to have multiple Section 60s over at Arlington National Cemetery. That's what we're trying to avoid, Jack Posobiec. Look, Steve, w- when we visited there last year, uh, and, and we even went down to Nikolayev, which is right across from Kherson. This is before the, the main Kherson pullout took place by the Russians. That the main thing that we saw on the ground, my brother and I, was that after taking the night train to Odessa, is that the, the people of Ukraine don't deserve this. The people of Ukraine that are caught in the middle, the men, the women, the children, they're just trying to live their lives. They don't want to be caught up in the geopolitics of the day. They don't want to be caught up in uh, these these. G.I. Joe narratives of Marvel movies, who's the Avengers, who's the bad guy, uh, you know, good and evil, right? They're just trying to get through their lives. In some cases, um, they don't have the ability to leave. In some cases, they just don't want to leave because it's their home and it's always been their home. And this has been the problem, the great tragedy of Eastern Europe. And it, it, it gives me a better sense, I guess I would say, of my own family as to why 
why my ancestors decided to leave Poland when they decided to leave, because Poland's a wonderful country, but the neighbors are not so good. And when you talk about the possibility of some of these missiles landed, when those missiles that it turned out to be errantly fired by Ukraine a couple of months ago landed in, killed a couple of Polish farmers, it was only a few miles away from where my family still lives in Poland, uh, right on the border with Ukraine. So we're uh, very, very close to where Lviv is, uh, just on the Polish side. In fact, when we were there a couple of weeks ago, you can actually see as you're driving into the village, you can see signs on the highway for Lviv. They said Lviv a couple more miles. Now, obviously, uh, there's a little bit more of border security than there has been in the past. But you know what? That fighting, it doesn't have to move very far until there's Posobics that are caught up in the middle. And that's the last thing that I want to see. That's the last thing I think that anybody wants to see, because when you look at these videos, you have to remember this isn't, um, you know, even in World War One, we talked about fighting over there. But for the people who live there, it isn't over there. It's fighting in your home. It's fighting on your street. It's fighting in your town, fighting at your school, your children's school. Um, this is something that Americans outside of the movie Red Dawn, the great John Milius, the father of Amanda Milius' movie Red Dawn, we've never even had to consider because it's never happened in U.S. history, even, you know, unless you want to count the Civil War. And so there's an idea, I think, of Americans that war is something that you go to, but we don't understand what it's like when war comes to you. And that's what's happened here. When we talk about war comes to us, you know, we have a huge audience in the in the tide war, the, the uh Norfolk Naval Station, the Tidewater area in Virginia. Uh, I want to pivot to, to, to Taiwan, South China Sea. A carrier battle group roughly, I think, has ten to 12,000 sailors in it. Uh, we got about a minute here, uh, Jack, before we go to the, uh, the next break. Uh, is it a possibility, as you see it, that a carrier battle group could actually be at the, the bottom of the Straits of Taiwan or the South China Sea in this coming kinetic war with the CCP? Well, that's what China's training their hypersonic missiles for, the glide vehicles. They're specifically training them to go after these aircraft carriers because if you can get through that uh, that missile shield that's provided by the Aegis system, by the destroyers and cruisers, then that aircraft carrier is essentially a sitting target. You can't exactly maneuver it. Jack Basovic's going to hang with us. We're going to take a, uh, a short commercial break. We're kicking off Memorial Day weekend, uh, the most solemn civic holiday uh, in the American uh, pantheon. Um, this weekend, we've got on Saturday, we've got Jack Basobic here with us for this hour. Uh, Patrick K. O'Donnell is going to join us momentarily. We've also got Patrick K. O'Donnell on Monday where we do our annual and traditional um, Memorial Day special. And Captain Maureen Bannon will also join us. Okay, we're going to take a uh, short commercial break. We're going to be back with former Naval Officer Jack Basobic in a moment. In my younger days, I was a naval officer on a destroyer. In fact, I was the A-gang officer in charge of all the engineering systems that were not main propulsion. And one of those 
was air purification. And I can tell you, the standards of the United States Navy are second to none. If all home air purifiers are the same, why did the U.S. Department of Defense select EnviroCleanse to protect and purify the air on board our Navy ships? Because of EnviroCleanse, advanced mineral technology goes beyond ordinary HEPA filters to destroy airborne illness causing cold and flu viruses, including COVID. EnviroCleanse is the new science in air purification, and now you can order one for your home. This is how you help stop colds and flus from taking your whole family down. This is how you destroy allergy and flaming toxins and mold from the air your family breathes. In fact, this hospital-grade technology is so powerful that it promises far fewer colds and allergies and better sleep. Visit ekpure.com. That's ekpure.com and use the code STEVE for 10% off your EnviroCleanse home purification unit. You also receive a free air quality monitor, plus fast, free shipping. That's $150 savings right there. That's ekpure.com, code Steve. ekpure.com, code Steve. Getter has arrived. The new social media taking on big tech, protecting free speech, and canceling cancel culture. Join the marketplace of ideas. The platform for independent thought has arrived. Superior technology. No more selling your personal data. No more censorship. No more cancel culture. Enough. Getter has arrived. It's time to say what you want the way you want. Download now. Hello, I'm Steve Stern, CEO of Flagshirt.com, a third-generation, veteran-owned small business. I believe that the American way of life is for all of us. I'm asking you today to visit flagshirt.com. Help keep the American dream alive. Be a flag waver. Carry a nation's heritage. Use coupon code ACTION10 for 10% off site-wide and buy a flag shirt today. Action, action, action. Okay. Um Make sure we're going to have a big special on 14 June on Flag Day. I want everybody to sign up for that. Uh, I've got a couple minutes here, and I want to turn it over to Jack Basobic. Jack, we're trying to, in, in the kickoff hour of a Memorial Day commemoration, we're trying to make sure we don't have any more Section 60s, which was opened up for the Iraq and Afghanistan vets. Uh, vets. The American military, the American people have bled enough in these foreign wars. We don't want another one on the Eurasian landmass, although it looks like we're heading to one in the South China Sea, in the Straits of Taiwan. I know you know China better than anybody. What, what is what is the, the, your thoughts and how bad it will be if we actually get into a kinetic war, sir? Uh, getting into a kinetic war with China would be one of the most, uh, I think, bloody and disastrous for the United States, for particularly, of course, my beloved United States Navy, uh, you look at some of the issues the United States Navy's had over the past couple of years, particularly in the 7th Fleet, which is the fleet that would bear the brunt of any military operations. Uh, that's the fleet that's forward deployed to Yokosuka, Japan, where I worked out of, where I served out of many times, uh, as well as serving out of stations in Guam and other parts of the East Asia Theater in the Pacific. So when we look at, uh, when we look at the situation there, what the PLA is doing, the People's Liberation Army and Navy, they are tightening the noose around Taiwan militarily. 
uh, not only in terms of their ability to build up their own forces. And I talked a little bit about the hypersonic glide vehicles, these hypersonic missiles that would have the ability to take out a U.S. carrier group that we are essentially unable to defend against. By the way, uh, if you want to piggyback off of Ukraine, we just saw a Russian hypersonic missile. And even though Raytheon doesn't like to hear it, um, a Russian hypersonic missile, a Kinzhal, just took out a U.S. Patriot battery. This is supposed to be our best anti-air defense system, and a Russian hypersonic missile just took it out a couple of weeks ago. So you better believe that even though they're not talking about it publicly, the war planners over at the Pentagon are freaking out at seeing this. That's supposed to be the best of the best. And if you can take out their batteries, then guess what? You can take out an aircraft carrier. Uh, you take out a carrier. These are floating airports. They don't have a lot of ability to defend themselves. That's why the term carrier battle group exists. It's essentially a floating city of 5,000 people, but so with with a you know the squadron air crew, as a, the air wing of the pilots, uh, the fighters, the bombers, different complements for different ships. But of course, you're surrounded by usually a couple of submarines, cruisers, destroyers to provide that air defense and the early warning system should any of those situations arise. Uh, we saw this uh, in, term, in terms of World War II as well with the Battle of Midway. The reason that the Battle of Midway we, 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 was we, the turning point was battle group. we took out the carriers. But at Coral, sea, at Coral Sea, we had we were shot out of the water. Real quickly, we got about a minute. You, you speak uh, fluent Mandarin. You read Mandarin. Uh, you were a naval intelligence officer on the mainland for the United States. Uh, you know the Chinese military as well as anybody I've ever met. Do you believe if we get into a shooting war in the Straits of Taiwan, South China Sea, East China Sea, that what's the probability an entire carrier battle group can end up on the bottom of the uh, of the Pacific, sir? I, I mean, there's no way we would get out of a battle with a, a direct military conflict with China without losing at least one or two battle groups or one or two carriers. There's no way. Wow. OK, Jack. I'm going to leave it with that. Uh, please, how do we get to all your content? People need to focus on Pasovic more than ever. Where do people go? Well, Steve, we're actually uh, pleased to announce that here on Real America's Voice, we are now going to be starting this Tuesday uh, at 2 p.m. We are going to be going live for the first time ever. We're going to be continuing live every single day, 2 p.m. So it's now going to go Bannon's War Room, Charlie Kirk, and then Poso for your block of nationalist populist uh, media every single day. Really wow. excited to be able to announce this at Real America's Voice. And then, of course, we'll be up on Rumble, we'll be up on Twitter, Truth Getter, everywhere else. Five hours of intensity, 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time to 3 p.m. in the afternoon. You got War Room, you got the Charlie Kirk Show, and then Human Events Daily with Jack Basovic. That's intense. Brother Basovic, congratulations. Long time coming, waiting for that. Look forward to seeing your first show this Tuesday, sir. I'll see you there, man. A great patriot, Jack Basovic. Uh, okay, we're going to leave you with uh, images of Section 60. Um, and we're going to come back with Patrick K. O'Donnell. Patrick was actually over there in the Battle of Fallujah. We're going to talk about some of the biggest battles in America and the heroism of our honored dead. That's what this weekend is about. I know it's the first weekend of summer, but it is a weekend in which we uh, acknowledge not our veterans and not those who are wounded, all the great heroes, but those that gave their lives in defense of this republic. Okay, couple of minute break. We're going to be back. Patrick K. O'Donnell will join us next in the war room.
folks, let me tell you about Salty. It's a company that makes a soft gel supplement rich in antioxidants to help people like you and me keep a healthy heart. While COVID gets all the headlines, it's important to realize that heart disease kills nearly 700,000 Americans every year. Yes, heart disease is the number one killer every year, year in and year out. Heart disease builds over time. Hypertension, high blood pressure, bad cholesterol, diabetes, all of it affects our heart. A healthy heart is key to being energetic as we get older. It is never too early to take care of your heart. You see, heart disease sneaks up on us. You can start in your 30s, and when this happens, you're at serious risk by the time you turn 60. If you want to take care of your heart and those you care about, please go to warroomhealth.com. That's warroomhealth.com. All one word, warroomhealth.com. Use the code warroom at checkout to save 67% of your first shipment. That's code WARROOM at checkout to save 67%. And do it again. WARROOMHEALTH, all one word, WARROOMHEALTH.COM. Go there today. You need, if you're going to be part of the posse, you need a strong heart. You need a lion's heart. How we're going to do that is with Salty. Go there. Do it today. Check it out. 